Hello and welcome back to Miss D's Lunacy Show. I have a friend here with me that has flown World War II airplanes upside down, was a quarterback for the New York Jets, and danced with the New York City Ballet. Sorry, he's also a chick magnet. Now, talking about morphing. Unbelievable. Please welcome my guest, Harry Hurt III, about what he does and how you will understand that his particular venue is participatory journalism. And here he is. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Miss Die. <laughs> Let me go back to the beginning because everybody is in such expectation of how in the world you flew upside down a World War II plane. Very, very carefully. Uh, it was part of a series I was doing for the New York Times. I had a column for four years called Executive Pursuits. And the idea was something fun to do on Saturdays. It actually ran in the business section, but these were high-end things that people who were in business and had a certain amount of money to spend might want to do. And a few things were something not available in any store. So a friend of mine... Uh, referred me to a place in Kissimmee, Florida, actually, called Stallion 51 that has a couple of hangars full of antique airplanes, including a P-51, which was the fighter plane that won World War II for the Allies. And the proprietor is a fellow named Lee Lauderbeck, who was Arnold Palmer's private jet pilot for 17 years until he started Stallion 51. And what he does is after 90 minutes of ground instruction, you go up in a two-seater plane um, with him in front and, and you in the back, and about 20 seconds after takeoff, he gives you over the controls and he starts leading you through various aerobatic drills. So I did wow. a wing over and then an aileron roll, then a barrel roll, and then I landed the sucker. Well, that is unbelievable. Do you know how few people have been one of those planes? And I have to tell you, I had. When I did my team shush, there was a friend of Tarek Wildman who had with us a, a DC-4 warplane, and it's beautiful. And first of all, they're dipped in dope. The wings and everything are built in, because they had to be very, very light to fly everybody through the Battle of the Bulge and the Battle of Normandy, which is where this plane had been. And we all got to go sit in it, and it was the most magnificent thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So basically, we kind of have a common story. Of course, I did not fly the controls, but you certainly had the opportunity to, and it was fantastic. Do you know they only weigh 17,000 pounds, by the way? Because they only go up about 150 to 250 feet in altitude because they have no decompressors. Well, the plane I flew goes 435 miles an hour, and it can fly straight up uh, like a, a rocket, if you will. Uh, I didn't try to fly it straight up, but that was one of the features. It had um, in the European theater 4,500 confirmed kills in the air and 4,500 confirmed kills on the ground. Uh, more interestingly than that, it was a co-venture by the U.S. and the Brits. Uh, Rolls-Royce provided the engines 
And from conception, as they say, from paper napkin to production was 180 days. You could not do that. You couldn't build a paperclip in 180 days today. That is true. And we had 16,000 of the DC-4s. Of course, yours was a different plane that they made in the United States. And they didn't know what to do with them. So some of them were used for mail carriers. Some of them would give them back to the Army. And some people collected them for their own personal use because they were so... Amazing. And now they're basically very few left. And they now cost hundreds of thousands of dollars if you happen to want to own one. If you happen to be a good pilot, of course, and have a big enough hangar to keep the thing. Wingspan, unbelievable. Fabulous. So that is so cool. I can't believe it. Okay, tell me about the quarterback. Well, as part of my executive pursuits um, series, I wanted to quarterback the New York Jets because the father of participatory journalism, George Plimpton, wrote a very famous book called Paper Lion that came out, I believe, in about 1968. And he had played a quarterback uh, in practice and then in an actual live scrimmage for the Detroit Lions. So this was an homage to George, who had passed away by that time, but was a dear friend of mine. And as it happens, the owner of the Jets, Woody Johnson, was also a friend of George. Uh, Plimptons, and so uh, Woody agreed to let me do this, and it was obviously be good publicity for the Jets. And so when I arrived, uh, they gave me a red jersey, which quarterbacks wear in practice, so the other players in practice know not to tackle them. And it had the number zero, which was George's number. No one in actual football league is allowed to wear zero, but I have the red jersey with the zero on it. Did so, you have pads and things and a helmet? And oh, the- yes. I had pads and cleats and an entire complete uniform. And the helmet actually uh, was wired so that um, I couldn't broadcast out, but the offensive coordinator um, could give me instructions through the helmet, and that's how pro football helmets work. So uh, I was actually waiting to go on the field in a dressing room, and the other players were already out playing, and all of a sudden this damn helmet starts talking, and I jumped about 15 feet in the air, and I said, is the helmet alive or something? And then I realized I was just on the same network as the other quarterbacks. So. How amazing. So they called you up, and they said, come on. Well, it took a while. We were, you know, I kept sort of bugging and, um, uh, you know, hoping that they would do that. In football and pro football, they have what's known as a bye week. Each team at some point during the season will not have a game scheduled. So this occurred during the bye week, um, at which point it was about halfway through the season for the Jets, and they were four and four. Uh, The next week after the bye week, they had to play the rival uh, New England Patriots at Foxborough, and darn they won. And I became sort of the mascot of the team. They finished um, uh, four and two, I guess, or excuse me, uh, six and two, and they made the playoffs that year. And so I was at the game um, at... um, the uh, giant stadium, I guess it's called, the Meadowlands, uh, for that final game. And I brought my son, and we were in the press room the first half, and then Woody Johnson invited us to the box at halftime where we watched the rest of the game. And then after the game, I went with um, 
Woody and then Governor George Pataki into the locker room to congratulate the team. And they were all autographing. I had my zero jersey on underneath my sports coat and they were all autographing it. And like a fool, I had hung, I later hung that up in my office and there was sunlight on it. So all the damn signatures faded away. Oh, but I still, no. I still have the jersey. Well, that is such a treat. It's so amazing because I don't know anybody who had the actual wherewithal to be able to do all that. Were you actually nervous when you're running around the field? Well, no. I think you, you want to focus on the task at hand and, and the, the sort of mechanics of that. I spent the morning learning the plays, and the plays are in pro football are as long as your arm. In high school, it might be 144 veer on two. And in, in one of the plays, I ran two pass plays and a running play, and one of the pass plays, uh, you had to say, uh, flank right, go right, 321 F flat. And what that means, uh, flank right is the formation, go right is the blocking assignments for the linemen, 321 is what the um, uh, receivers are supposed to do, and then uh, F, or excuse me, 321 is what the running backs are supposed to do, and then the uh, receiver is, is F flat. So, oh my god, I would have been running around with my head cut off. I know absolutely nothing about football. Were you pleased with the end, the game that just happened from whom, whom to whom, whom? I think Denver was playing, oh, sweetie. They call that the Super Bowl, yes. Okay, well, the you see, Super I'm on for I'm French, I don't know anything about football. Okay, so did we you, you would call it Le Bowl Super, Le Gaul, exactly, Le Bowl Super, and I keep wondering why everybody's hitting themselves and having terrible injuries. Of course, they can't remember who they are three years down the road, but. Were you pleased with the team who won? Were you rooting for who? I was rooting for the Denver Broncos who won. Well, there you go. Yeah, I had well, I had a bet with my son. I gave him first pick, and he picked the Carolina Panthers. So, oh, so you? Beat. So I, I won a dollar. Yay! I don't know. I mean, I don't watch any of this, unfortunately. Show me tennis. Show me soccer. I do understand. I know. I apologize for my. Ignoramus français excuse. Well, actually, dancing with the ballet was much more difficult. I had played football growing up. Uh, I actually took, my mother made me take ballet lessons a brief period because she uh, said the Notre Dame backfield was made to take ballet lessons. And it's good for your coordination and so forth. But uh, that was that was quite difficult. My um, alter ego was Charles Askegaard, who was one of the principal dancers. And uh, I went to what uh, they call class, which is actually the morning workout. And he was showing me plies and tendus and all this stuff. It's all in French. I can't remember any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, the plie, you, you, I know. All you probably it. speak all that. But, uh, uh, oui, oui, je comprends. I do understand. Anyway, we ended up, the, the sort of point where we were going was I did a little brief bit from uh, Swan Lake with Jennifer Ringer, uh, who was one of the principal dancers. And I actually, I had to do a lift, and I'm sure I got her at least an inch off the ground, <laughs> uh, which made it a lot uh, less injurious for her when I just dropped her on the floor and she splatted like a piece of Well, they spaghetti. usually put them somewhere around their shoulders, but you have to tell my readers, because as you know, Harry's very good looking. So can you imagine what he was wearing on the show? Please tell them. Well, I was wearing tights and I was wearing um, leg warmers and I was wearing 
um, uh, ballet shoes, men's ballet shoes. They didn't have a, a toe point, but um, Charles had to sew on the elastic strap. For, and then I was wearing this top that Charles had picked from Capizio's. And, and I look pretty much like a beached whale. <laughs> you could you. not possibly. You couldn't possibly. But, I mean, did you really sort of like scurry around and do a pas jeté here and there? Oh, yeah. Oh, Harry. I'm it was so- all on film. We we, we made um, 14 web videos when I was at the Times. We have the, the, the airplane video, which actually the airplane people made. Uh, we have the jets. We have uh, the ballet. We have um, snowboarding. We have uh, whitewater kayaking. We have surfing, sailing, a um, whole bunch of stuff. Where in the world do we see these? Well, they should be available in the New York Times archives. The Times is not as good about keeping up their archives as they might be, but they should be there. And then, of course, you can always call me up because I have them on DVD. And we can have a private session with Bob Gorm, Shay Harry Hurt III. Now, tell my readers or my listeners, I apologize, what's the third? I want to hear about the third. What's the third? The third. Your father, your grandfather, and now yourself. Right. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. On de toi. And de toi. And your son, you said, the hell with the fourth. Well, I didn't want him to go around with the burden of people asking him, what's Harry hurt for? Yeah, exactly. They make, they exactly. make enough fun of our last name as it, as it was. But my um, grandfather's name was Harry von Alderhoff Hurt. Um, uh, Heinrich von Alderhoff was our German ancestor that came to the U.S. in 1838. So my grandfather was uh, Harry von Alderhoff Hurt. My father um, became for a while just Harry A. Hurt without the von. And then because of anti-German sentiment in World War II, he dropped that entirely. He was Harry A. Hurt Jr. And then I'm just playing Harry Hurt the third without a middle name. Well, we have a friend called Minot, who I'm sure you know, and his son is the fourth, and they call him IV. Yes. And I, I love it, like intravenous or IV, the IV on the wall. Yes, well, I know both Minot three and Minot IV. But, I but like them both. I like them both, but I love the way people could make some wonderful names. But I agree with you. What's Harry the four is fourth. I had a room at Canyon Ranch, which I go all the time, and it was number 730. So I would go to the dining room and I'd say, I'd like to have dinner at 7.30 for 7.30. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean 7.30 for 7.30? And I meant, I'm eating at 7.30, charge it to room 7.30. I had them all confused every single day because of the fact that the room number matched the time that we ate for dinner. Well, I once wrote a story about namesake sons for Texas Monthly. And they took pictures. They took a picture, a photograph of my father and me. They also took a a photograph of four Lloyd Bensons. Remember, Lloyd Benson was the senator. There were four of those. I found um, some Anglo people, actually, in San Antonio that went by Cuatro and Cinco. So the Cinco would be the fifth. And then the craziest thing was I found these twins, one of whom was a father of a girl I knew in high school. And they were named Henry M. Dudley one and Henry M. Dudley two twins, the same age with exactly the same name, except for the Roman numeral at the end. Can you imagine going through life like that? Well, especially since nobody uses the the last part, it would be 
who you really want, the one or the two. I mean, it just, some, uh, had a lovely couple that were renting my house. And you know what their names were? Pat and Pat. So you'd call Pat and they'd say, which one? And it got very confusing. Pat and Pat, I'm very unusual to meet a couple who are actually ma- ma- named Pat and Pat. Well, I guess they had that down, Pat, huh? They certainly did, but it got confusing, I can tell you. I love names. There's a wonderful somebody. Was it John Train who wrote a book about names and where they came from? Because we know we know from somebody from Texas. I mean, I met her very, very briefly with Mrs. Jane Blaffer, but she was I'm a hog, and she was my grandmother's maid of honor at her wedding uh, to our grandfather, Henry Robert Lee Blaffer. And you have, must have met her, and her house is now a museum. Can you imagine a mean old man that he was? And he named his daughter, who he was Mr. Hogg, and he named his daughter I'm a hog. Yes, I knew I'm a hog. And, Tiny little lady, and, right? Um, uh, people called her Miss Ima. Oh. Her father was James Hogg. He was actually a governor of Texas at one point. But she was lovely, and she was a great um, philanthropist. Uh, and her house Houston. is a museum. Yes, it's called Bio Ben. It's beautiful. But how could she have survived being called I'm a hog? Well, she lived about 95 or 96. So she better so I guess have gotten she used got to over it. it. She got... But she never married. I know, poor. But she, she was exactly the opposite of a hog. She was petite and skinny, yeah. and and very very smart and very cultured, and was the nicest lady. She called me the boy with the rosebud mouth. Oh, I think I think the old lady was trying to hit on me. Too, I don't know, but you must have been awful younger than her. But I just love names. So John Train wrote a book about some of the funniest names of people, and somebody should get it because it's actually out there, and. I mean, today people are calling children very strange things. I mean, you're born in August, you're called Autumn. You're born in August. I mean, what is this? Ciel, Autumn, Madison. I find names very strange today. Why would you want to be an avenue? I mean, why? I don't understand. So, well, you know, there's a story of, of the Indian boy who went to his parents and they said, you know, Mommy, Daddy, I, I have such a strange name. You know, uh, well, son, it's because our tradition is um, that we name uh, children after the first thing we see. Why do you ask three dogs humping? (laughs) I've heard that one. There's actually an Indian who did that, which I have heard that one, and it's not very nice, I have to say. But going back to the ballet, it reminded me when we were little girls, everybody goes to the ballet, is in the ballet, takes ballet classes, so they give you these beautiful little tutus, and I'm all dressed up, and I have this big flower on my head. And they tell me, now, Miss D, you go out to the front, and you do a little pirouette, and that's it. And then you stand there looking pretty. I, being completely in left field, because I think my brain was in another stratosphere for quite some time when I was a child, I just went out there and did a beautiful smile and never moved. And they didn't know how to tell me, cute-wise, could you do your pirouette? So I just sat there, and I was so happy, just, hello, everybody, and completely missed it. So I'm, that was my first time on stage. But then I sort of quite got the picture since I was in the theater for many years, unbeknownst to Bones, and I actually would get applause. I don't know what I was doing. So there must have been some humor way back then because I actually did quite well in the theater. Will you rather remind me of Lucille Ball? Oh, she's hysterical. Nobody could be as funny than she was. She's a pretty good one. I'll tell you, she was a... T- oh, my goodness. She smoked up a storm. One of the funniest ladies I've ever met. There's a wonderful British show that everybody has to see if you think it's funny. It's called Mrs. Brown's Boys. Have you ever heard it? No. Oh, Harriet, you will laugh your head off. It's actually a man that is dressed as a woman. He's a comedian. He's the funniest thing I have ever 
ever heard of in my entire life. And he has three of the stupidest children in the entire world. But he is hysterical, hysterical, hysterical. And if you don't watch on the BBC, Mrs. Brown's Boys, when you're depressed, you will laugh so hard, you won't see straight. I don't want to tell you any of the stories. They're so hysterical. Well, I thought all the the men or boys in Britain dress like women. Isn't that what they teach them in boarding school? I well, I, that's, a, that's a toughie. I'm not going to get into that. They're not very nice when they're younger. But this man was a performer for years. And somehow he morphed into this role. And you really can't tell he's a man. And it, when he takes his makeup off and he, he had started a bar and the bar had burned down, you should hear his story. I mean, everything that could have been calamitous in his life had actually happened and then he felt he had actually written the series that nobody wanted and then when he showed up in full costume like tootsie or whatever the movie was you know nobody could believe it was him and they said and he, he, he just performed he didn't say anything to anybody and they said by jove you've got it and he got the show started without telling them who he was and of course he went off like tootsie and then you know took off all his makeup and then they were absolutely astounded how funny he was so please do see it because it will make you laugh. All righty. So uh, uh, whitewater rafting. Did your boat ever turn over? Oh, yes, it did. Yeah. And, and actually, I had a really great teacher. Because of time constraints and budget constraints, I had to go from zero whitewater rafting to Four. running a class three rapids in about I... 36 hours. And the very first thing that this young man who – who taught me, had me do, was to go flip over intentionally underwater and stay down for 15 seconds. And I was actually comfortable with that. I, when I was a child, I could swim underwater, and I actually fancied myself like a scuba diver. So I was fine with that. As it happened, um, the next day, I was navigated class one and class two rapids with no problem. But near uh, the end of the, the river was a, a, a class three rapids, and I was determined to make it, but I didn't. And I went over, and I was under for nine seconds. I happened to know exactly because um, we were making a video of this, and you could count on the video. And the teacher was in his own kayak waiting for me on the other side of an eddy and um, he had instructed me what you do is um, you uh, go under and you just um, chill and wait for the hands of God and he was going to be the hands of God and he turned me upright again and all the people on the shores began cheering so it was but how can can you get out of underwater by yourself well, yeah, there's ways to do it. Uh, there's things. There's something called an Eskimo roll where you intentionally sort of flip yourself under. But with some practice, yes, very much, you can get up by yourself. But that you, you had ideally, you always want to uh, go rafting in pairs, never solo, be so that you know you have assistance there if you need it. There are things that you do with the paddle that you push off of the, the, the riverbed or whatever or off of rocks to right yourself. I practiced some of that, but in that short amount of time, I wasn't able to master that particular procedure. Your heart must have been pounding. Well, actually not, because this young man had taught me and prepared me so well. Again, the very first thing we did before he taught me to paddle or do any of that sort of thing was to go underwater so that I wouldn't panic uh, and that, you know, we would know 
what to do. So you just stay. I actually, I mean, I like water. It was fun. Cold. I, I, it, well, it was, it was, you know, it was in the summer we did this in North Carolina. So the, the cold water was actually kind of refreshing. It was probably about 92 or three outside. So that was, that was kind of a, a splash. And it was also a little bit better because you weren't out there going, get to because you could really get nervous. So he righted you up. Somebody righted you up. And then down you went again. You kept going. No, that was it. That was the end of the voyage. So was it a rock that had actually hit you or the fact that you have to be able to, Well, with, with the paddles, you have to be that's, able to? That's a good question. There were some big rocks there. That's what causes the churn, the foam. Um, and counterintuitively, when you approach a rock, the way because the foam is coming off in the the rock, you actually have to lean towards the rock, which again is very counterintuitive. And I knew what to do. We'd practice this stuff, but in you know, in the heat of it or in the chill of it, if you will, I didn't. I leaned away from the rock, and that's what made me go over but you know it's just like if you're driving a car you see a rock you steer away from it obviously well in in whitewater rafting you want to lean towards it and that balances you because there's all this water that's streaming off the rock so you're going counter the 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 water and you'd stay perfectly straight and upright and not hit the rock but that's all right if you know in these videos and in these stories if i didn't get messed up and get hurt a little bit then there was nothing funny and there was no point to the story so well so right but i mean but this was not contrived i was trying to do it you know properly exactly because that's the whole point so the story has more poignancy more humor more excitement because actually when you mentioned all this you could be talking about it. You're looking at a dictionary, but no, 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 not Monsieur Harry the Third. He has to go out and do it. So your articles must have been brilliant, brilliant, because of the excitement of it all. And now tell me, motorcycles. You also in, lean into the curve, not away from it. Correct. That's correct. It's a very similar thing. You tend to think no, 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 but you got to go into the curve, even though you think you're going to fall over. But that's exactly how to do it. Does yeah, motorcycles are too dangerous for me. I've had a lot of friends who've gotten really badly hurt on motorcycles. I did drive an open wheel um, race car. That means a race car with no roof at Lime Rock, and I, I learned to do that. And that I was love that, driving. That was fast. that was a lot of fun, and and I was okay with that. But it actually that was one of the things I knew how to do. I've been driving, you know, in Texas. At one point, you could get your full unrestricted 14. driver's license at fourteen, and I did have that, and. Um, so, you know, I thought this would, would be, you know, would come easily to me, but it, it actually didn't. And the, um, the engine was so loud and stuff. And also what they were encouraging you to do is drive much, much faster than you're ever used to even speeding around in your, your car. And, and over the course of about two and a half days, I did get speedier but uh they when they say drive they mean flat out all the time like 300 miles an hour well these cars didn't go that fast because lime rock is not an oval track or a a drag race thing it's it's got it's irregularly shaped yes it's got several different curves some go to the right some go to the left some are s curves there are some straightaways then there's some rises and there's some dips and and all that and at one point the instructor piled us into a a Ford van and said, you guys aren't driving fast enough. I'm going to show you. And we went around the track in this Ford van. And actually, at one point, all four wheels got up off the pavement. 
I didn't like that very much. I don't think so. But, but, you know, the point was these instructors knew the limits of the different vehicles, the van and the race cars. And, and to, you know, compete in a, as a driver, you really do have to push it to the very, very edge. Most beginners are nowhere near the edge. They think they're going fast, but they're really not. Well, that's exactly what happened, unfortunately, to John Kennedy Jr., was that he lost sight of the, of the, air, of the line because of when he was flying and he got, he got lost and he went exactly in the wrong direction. Just as you said, you feel like you're supposed to be going one way, but technically it wasn't. Remember when he was flying? Speedy, when he was in fog and stuff. And Correct. Night. And so he lost the sight of line. And because he wasn't trained properly in, in uh, me- mechanism, is that what you call? Instrument. Instrument. He was not, he had made a mistake unfortunately because you can lose sight very similar to you're supposed to go to the right when you're you're supposed to go to the left in the rock you don't think of these things instinctively you want to do the opposite thing and unfortunately he lost the sign of of line and that's how he was trying to fix the plane and it went further now talking about 14 years old our dear cousin annie who this is how i met my dear friend harry was driving at 12 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because she had to go pick up Carol all over the place. It was also a dear friend of yours. And Carol would call Annie, who was 12 years old, and she'd get in her nightgown and go pick up Carol at 12 years old. I I mean, back in the day, nobody bothered you, correct, Amundo? I mean, it was just like nobody. I mean, if a policeman had seen you, they'd probably said, oh, dear, Miss Owen, let me drive you home, correct? Yes, that's right. But those were the good old days. Those are the good old days. Today, ooh, love, ooh, be careful, please get out of the car, and I will not talk to you and videotape you. So they become very, very dangerous today's, in today's standard. But, I mean, the things that you all did in Texas was amazing. Well, did you try a rodeo? Like, you know, uh, st- you know what is it, the tuck, tuck, tuck with the cow? You know, the little baby cow? It's called uh, roping. bull riding or, or, or roping. Roping, roping. I, no, don't, no, I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that either. I did do a piece on polo. Um, That's fun. Actually here in, in Palm Beach with the Southampton Polo Club during the winter. And they gave me a very stiff-legged horse because it was a slow horse, I supposedly easier to control. But when, when I was riding the horse just alone... Or, or with an instructor on another course, it's no big deal. But when you get, um, you know, eight of them out there together, they all feed off each other. And so this horse took off, and it was like driving a car without shock absorbers. So I actually suffered an incredible back spasm about halfway through the first and only chucker that I played. And I just had to walk out. Uh, the horse, the the rest of the chucker, because it was, and it took me ultimately three months to recover from that, doing hot yoga and things like that to make the muscle spasm finally release and go away. So I wrote a, a story about the Bikram yoga or the hot yoga, which ha- happened to have this really hot instructor named Lynette Crawford. Well, that always helps to heal, doesn't it, yeah, there? Well, exactly. <laughs> but some of these sports are very, very complicated, I have to say. And so no airplane things otherwise. How about mountain climbing? I did do some rock climbing in uh, what they call the Gunks, the Shondunk Mountains, north of New York. Uh, it was interesting. I probably only climbed up in height, maybe 40 or 50 feet. I was talking to my instructors there. They were fl- afraid of f- flying on commercial airlines out to Montana 
to climb more rocks. So everyone has their own little comfort zone. But isn't that ironic that, you know, I'd be, I was fine flying. And, and actually flying the airplane did not bother me at all. And I'm, I'm scared of heights uh, in the terms if you put me up on a, a, a ladder. promontory or a ladder, oh my God. then, then I, I'm, I'm like that. The same thing happened. I also um, jumped with the uh, U.S. Army's Golden Knights paratroop team in North Carolina. And my instructor said he was afraid of heights in the stepladder sense. So I said, oh, my God. And, and what you do there when you begin, it's called a tandem jump. So the, this instructor is, is actually strapped to your back. And you jump out the plane together, and he pulls the ripcord and does all that kind of stuff. But that, uh, that was an interesting one. I was taking a road trip from um, Sag Harbor to Maine to California in a smart car. This was after my, uh, the Times had dropped my column. It was amid the financial crisis of, crisis of, of 2009. And the first stop on my trip was Kennebunkport, Maine. And I went to see George Bush the first. And he had just jumped out with the, the Golden Knights to celebrate his 85th birthday. And I knew I knew Mr. Bush from Houston, and we used to have big arguments about the war in Vietnam and about Nixon and so forth. And I said, Mr. President, you know, you may not remember this, but we used to have these big arguments at the bio club. But I want to say, sir, you know, there's the old cliche, I want to die when my parachute doesn't open at 90, but you have just jumped out of a plane on your 85th birthday, sir, and I've got to really admire that. And he said, well, he says, are you going through North Carolina on your road trip? And I said, yes, sir, I think I am. Well, I'll set it up for you to jump with the Golden Knights. And I went, oh, my God, I can't not do it now because the 85-year-old coot's going to embarrass me. Uh, but, but he did. And, and it was great, except that the, f- the first day we went up, I was with an instructor who had jumped with um, President Bush. And... Uh, some other skydivers had jumped out of the plane. We were the last in the plane. There was a photographer who was filming all this who was hanging from the strut of the airplane just outside the door. And just my toes were literally hanging out the door jam, and they aborted the jump, and everybody climbed back in because a thunder cell had come up. And sure enough, we landed the plane and we're on the runway and crack the lightning crackles and the thunder roars and all that. So it had to do it. We had to do a second take the next day. And I had this other instructor who was afraid of of heights. But but by that time, word had gotten out of what was happening. And I got a lot of encouragement because they didn't think I'd show up the next day, you know, after that that first thing. I would have run. Well, you you know, you got to do what you got to do. But I was really, really scared. And they they tell you, uh, because they're filming it, to really smile broadly because the wind is so intense up there, it'll make your cheeks flap. So I'm just trying to force this smile, you know. And my my son later saw me uh, in the video and he said, Dad, you look really scared. I said, son, I was really scared. I mean, the drop, it's got to be 150 per... Well, you don't feel it. It's like you're floating for a while and then, you know, there's a lot of wind rush and it's very intense. And then um, when finally it becomes comes time to open the chute, you go from this intent. Up. Well, it looks like you're going up, but you're actually just dropping more slowly than the other um, skydivers. But uh, once that chute opens, then you are in 
the most blissful, quiet, and calm you have ever seen. And you know it's okay now because you're going to, the chute's open, you know, it, it, it deployed properly. There's a bunch of grass down there. You're just floating down. This guy's going to land you. And then. Yeah, well, you got to land and you also got to buckle and roll. And you gotta be... Well, you're supposed to land on your feet and then kind of run. I, um, did the next best thing, which is I just fell on my butt. But, uh, oh. but you know, remember, when I'm falling on my butt, I got a guy strapped behind me, so I, he's falling on his butt, too. <laughs> so we all fell on our butt, but it, 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 was, it was great. It, it was, I, I was ecstatic about it. Well, first of all, it's very dangerous even to land. You can actually really hurt yourself very badly if you don't land properly. True. And well, what it does remind me when you said about when you deploy your chute and you have this sense of tranquility, it reminds me of the flyings with the um, planes without the engines. What do they call Gliders. Gliders. And that, to me, was one of the most sexiest, the most beautiful experience I think I've ever had. Was oh, to you be, did that? You flew in I a glider? Did, yes. Now, you're holding out. Wait yeah, a minute. You're the, I'm the, supposed to be the daredevil, but it, tur it, it turns out you're the, the daredevil. No, no, no. Actually, no. you know what? We're both devils. Well, I'm, I'm daring to a certain extent, but I certainly have not done what you've done. But I did do a glider because it's very common in Brussels and Belgium and in England as well. I used to spend my summers with my first husband in Brussels and everything, and it's very common that there are fields and fields where you go and you can actually get on a glider. And I love the fact that the plane carries you up and then you ride the thermals and there's not a sound and you're not afraid. For some reason, there is no fear. You're in this little cocoon. I mean, don't forget the plane weighs, what, 300 pounds? I mean, it's nothing. It's just a little piece of metal. But there's no fear. And the, it, the sensation of freedom and quiet is amazing. It's also very funny because people say, Dion, you can't. I also did um, diving and I absolutely loved it. And, all, and so I did all the testing and everything else. I did have to share a breathing tube with a girl for a while in the pool because I couldn't find a fellow to go do the breathing tube. You have to well, share. Well, next time you ask me, honey, I'll I be know, happy I know, but you weren't in the class. You, you can have my tube if I can. Oh, uh, well, that's what I didn't yeah. have. Anyway, anyway, so I started. You know what? That might suck. I don't know. Let's not get into this. So I finally passed my little brevet and I had my little card and I absolutely loved diving it was the most serene peaceful quiet and my friend said to me all my friends said to me but dion how could you possibly like underwater you can't talk there <laughs> <laughs> and i said well it's actually probably a very good peaceful time for me because otherwise blah, blah 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 so people made fun of me but i did it for about three years and absolutely loved every minute of it but i don't know why i didn't i didn't do it longer i think I, as i got older i got more fears but it was a very exciting to go down with all the, the big boys, the little boys. Then when that, that movie came out where they left the couple, oh, goodness gracious, they were diving and they left the couple and they forgot. And then they made a movie and they came back and, of course, they were gone and they were dead and they never found them again. They'd actually left them diving. Oh, Kelora. So anyway, that sort of said, well, that's, that's, I'm unfinished. And then I went off the island of Capri, and I did have a bit of a panic then because they were going down under a grotto, and I held on to, I'd forgotten that you actually could breathe underneath. You think, well, well, gulp, and I'll just be back. You gulp, and then you go, well, there we go. Well, no, no, no. So anyway, I had to hold on to the fellow to give me sort of a reminder, and I didn't let him go for a while because I was a bit older at the time, but I managed to do it. So we do things in different variety of reasons. Mine were because I was escorted by some lovely people, plus I was not flying it. 
But the whole idea of being on an airstream is, as you said, when you were coming down the pla- the pa- parachute, that tranquility, the, the 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 clouds, you feel safe. And so I had a little bit of an experience, but you see, I didn't write about it. You got to write about it, which is far more interesting because you were having other readers enjoy it for you, as you did. I think it's wonderful. So I, before we finish, I want to talk about the fact that Harry has actually written seven books. And I'm sure you can find them on Amazon, correct? Yes. So, uh, Harry, bring some of the titles up because one of them was actually infamous because he was on television, and we won't cover it all together. Well, I, I wrote a book um, that came out in 1981 called Texas Rich, the Hunt Dynasty from the early oil days through the silver crash, uh, and that described H.L. Hunt, who had uh, became the world's richest man in oil, of course, and along the way he sired three families, two of which he started while he was still married to and living with his first wife. My second book was called For All Mankind. It was based on interviews with the Apollo astronauts who landed with the moon. Uh, The third book was called Lost Tycoon, The Many Lives of Donald J. Trump. I love it. Uh, We know who he is. Um, He recently called me a dummy dope, so I'm in good. He also called the Pope uh, disgraceful uh, recently. Uh So we're all in good company, me and my pal, the Pope. Uh, Then I wrote... um, uh, three golf books, uh, one called Chasing the Dream about making a golfing comeback that I made at the age of 43 after having not played since college. Then I wrote uh, a book called How to Learn Golf, and I co-authored a book uh, with another golf pro named Mitchell Spearman called The Aim of Golf. And then finally, the seventh book was co- uh, a collection of my New York Times columns that we've been discussing, and that is appropriately called hurt yourself that's the book i want yeah that's the book i want and i want it autographed by you you shall have it because the stories i think are fascinating so you see we delivered what we told you you were going to hear and it's absolutely extraordinary now harry promise me you're going to send me a signed copy of hurt yourself you got it honey i love it i love it i love it So we're going to come to a little close, and I have an absolutely silly little joke that I want to pass on. There's a show called... Wants to be a Millionaire? Yes, exactly. Who who does? Well, a lot of people. There's a show on TV about it. Well, then start with a billion dollars. Well, they actually don't, because it's a millionaire. I want to be a billionaire. A millionaire... Well, I don't really want to. You don't? No, I don't know. I just want to live comfortably. I don't want to get... I don't want people all over me and making me feel stupid and weird and telling me that I should be doing this and should be doing that. No, I'm perfectly happy. But anyway, this crazy lady is on the show, and she's now up to 500000 And now if she answers this one question right, she's going to be a millionaire. She's doing really well because the questions get harder as the amount of money grows. So this question was the one, which of the following birds does not build its own nest? Is it a robin? Could it be a sparrow, a cuckoo, or a thrush? Well, she scratched her little head, didn't know what to do, but you're allowed a lifeline. So she calls her best friend, Margie, back in Birmingham. And so she says, hello, Margie, what do I do? This is um, your dear friend, and who builds the nest, or does not, actually? And she went through the, the things, robin, sparrow, cuckoo, and thrush. And her friend said, well, don't be stupid, darling. Of course it's the cuckoo. And sure enough, it was the cuckoo. So anyway, next day, she celebrates with her million dollars and goes to the best restaurant, and they have champagne together. 
And she asked her friend, well, Maggie, how in the world did you know that it was a cuckoo that didn't build a nest? And she said, well, my dear, everybody knows the cuckoo lives in a clock. <laughs> silly, silly, but I thought it was very cute to end the show. And it's so sad that we have to part with my dear friend, Harry, who could go on. His, his stories are so bloody interesting. You should have your own talk show, my dear friend. You are worth listening to for every second of every minute. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you um, here today, Miss D. So we're going to close with my favorite sentence, as you know. Please lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. God bless you, and please find me on Google.com under Miss D's Lunacy, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and have a wonderful day.